We have been taking some time away from our normal study in the Gospel of Matthew and spending, spending some time looking at what uh, I call cultural creeds, these, these little statements of, uh, of belief, which whether you recognize it or not, are subtle attempts to catechize a whole new generation in a, a new kind of civic religion. When we speak about creeds, we normally think of explicit sort of religious movements or denominations, but make no mistake, these little pithy sayings that are reverberating throughout society are intended to impress upon the hearts of people a new value system, a new way of thinking about life and, uh, and the world and their purpose and everything. And so we've been trying to isolate some of those things, these societal doctrines, and uh, examine them uh, under the light of God's truth to try to understand uh, where they come from and where they're leading and how we should respond as, as believers. And we've already had opportunity to look at two of them in the last few weeks. Uh, the first was, you may remember, love is love. And then the the last time we were together, live your truth. Today, I want to approach a third of these creedal statements, the mantra that we so often hear that claims, my body, my choice. My body, my choice. Sounds very reasonable to perhaps the uh, uh, neutral hearer. Every person uh, should certainly have the freedom of choice, uh, we believe. But like so many other of these popular proverbs, this little slogan, uh, which is attempting to play against some perceived injustice, uh, some widespread wrong, uh, attempts more than it really may come across to begin with. It... uh, It really speaks to the broader frustrations and challenges that women face. We often associate this little pithy saying with uh, just the issue of reproductive rights. But for many women, this has broader connotations. My body, my choice is a rallying cry uh, against what they consider to be old systems of oppression and domination against women. It is inseparably linked to all kinds of other uh, issues where they they have felt or at least uh, been communicated to them that they are nothing more than an object or a commodity to be traded on in the interest of other people. And so this slogan for some people becomes a kind of a protest, a, a declaration of independence from harassment and abuse and domestic violence Not to mention just the the general attempts to dismiss or control women in society. It even stands as a call to end slavery and human trafficking and all of those things. It's It's a declaration from women that they should have control in their life and in their health and in their and their body. So for some women they they associate even this whole discussion about reproductive rights or abortion with all of these other forms of oppression. Therefore, anybody that would question 
a slogan like this, anyone who would push back against that kind of creedal statement is sometimes associated with all these domineering ideas, all the broader sense of oppression, even the the notion that you would be in some way approving of some of these other forms of injustice. And that makes uh, not only it challenging sometimes for a Christian or or someone to speak out against this, it, it also makes these aphorism, aphorisms sort of dangerously deceptive and divisive within society because they are essentially attempting to capture a whole host of problems and associate them together all with the notion that they could be solved if everyone would just simply embrace this simple slogan. But the plain truth is this. You can be appalled by something like domestic violence or human trafficking and also be appalled by attempts to dehumanize life in the womb. You you can believe that sexual harassment is immoral and also believe that abortion is immoral at the same time. You can be absolutely supportive of the dignity of women and yet absolutely disgusted by the deadliness of abortion. You, You can have all of those differing opinions. It's not all one thing. And you, you can't group it all together and solve it with, with, with some little slogan. So, so you can reject a creed like my body, my choice, and still consider yourself a strong supporter of the dignity and the value and the voice of women. That's possible. In fact, when you understand the truth of God's word, then you understand that a slogan like my body, my choice is not actually leading to the dignity of women. It's, in fact, propping up a design that afflicts women with the most bleak and desolate of outcomes that society could impose on them, and it's your obligation to stand opposed to it. And to help you understand that, I want to take some time to walk you through four basic but powerful principles that I believe will unmask the myth behind this motto about reproductive rights and women's dignity, but really about the broader uh, purpose and design that God has for women in the world. And the first one is, is just simply this. The first principle that unmasks the myth of this motto is, is that the gospel elevates the status of women. That is fundamental. The gospel elevates the status of women. Whether people accept that or not, it always has been true and still is true. That at the core of the biblical message is an idea of the most fundamental equality of men and women made in the image of God. That image in its full-orbed sense of both the functional reality of of a stewardship entrusted to us as human beings to to subdue the earth and to rule over it, that's entrusted to men and women together as image bearers. And then the the, the sort of uh, fundamental components that are necessary to fulfill that function, that is to say, all of the intellectual and spiritual and moral components that have to be renewed in Christ. That is equally 
a, a part of God's calling and God's design for women, that they would stand equal with men in all of those things as image bearers of God. And therefore, whenever the gospel is proclaimed, it's proclaimed with the promise of restoring humanity to that purpose. Because when sin entered into the world, although we were created in the image of God, that image became corrupted. It became marred. And, it, and we can't fulfill our calling as men and women in the image of God without the gospel. But when the gospel comes in, it comes in equally for both men and women and makes us equal before God in in every way. This is Paul's declaration in Galatians 3.28. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither fa- uh, 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 slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. The heart of the gospel is this fundamental concern for all people, no matter what their race or gender or background or any of those things. As long as you are in Christ, you are considered a child of God. You see, long before the modern feminist movement, the gospel was and has been at work elevating the status of women wherever it was proclaimed and defended in a very unique way. I mean, the status of women prior to the coming of Christ and prior to the gospel was strikingly different than what it is today and what it was after the time of Christ. It wasn't a good situation in pagan societies for women. They, were, they, were, uh, they faced serious challenges to their status and their dignity in society. They were largely viewed for two primary purposes, the propagation of children and the pleasure of men. That was it. They were largely looked at as the property of others. A number of Greek philosophers promoted this idea, most notably Aristotle, who actually says that women are simply deformed versions of men. They're just men who didn't fully develop in some way, and so they're sort of stuck in this deformed status. He actually says at one point that the male is better and more divine than the female. That was his view from a philosophical standpoint of women. It didn't fare much better within the religious circles when you move from philosophy to the, to the pagan religions. Women were also still demeaned in many ways. You think, well, how can that be? I mean, they had goddesses I mean, they actually, they actually thought of their gods as male and female. Isn't that somehow exalting women? Well, not if you peeked into the temples where these goddesses were worshipped, where they were staffed with thousands of temple prostitutes, where they would engage in orgiistic activity at the pleasure of men in the name of some sort of worship experience. It was demeaning to women in every way. Even these temples that were dedicated to their goddesses wound up being ways of oppression for, 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 for women. When the Romans came along, it wasn't much better. They had a few rights that they would have given to their nobility. Those who were Roman citizens had certain rights, inheritance rights, for example, that were rare in society for those days. Women who were of the citizenry could inherit their husband's property. They had some restraints even on divorce. They couldn't be just divorced for any reason. But if they were, if they were victims of divorce, it was absolutely clear in Roman society they had no rights when it came to their children, zero. 
It was, it was incontrovertible, incontrovertible in Roman society that when a divorce happened, the children were the property of their, of their dad, of the husband. And women had no claim on them whatsoever. And even within their marriages, there was a certain tolerance for, for abuse, even in some cases prescriptions for abuse within the home in order to make women comply. And then, of course, if you weren't of the citizenry, if you weren't noble born in that sense, you had little better situation than even slaves. You had very few rights. You know, in Jewish society, it wasn't much better when you look at the contemporary writings in Jesus' name, not the biblical writings, but the contemporary writings of other uh, rabbis in that day, you see very clearly that they shared similar kind of views of women. They actually talked about how women uh, needed to be pleasurable to their husbands, and if they weren't, the husbands could just divorce them. Women were never encouraged to study the Torah. They were told that there was no need for them to attend the synagogue since they really couldn't learn anyway. They were not required to participate in the national religious feast. Their entire relationship to God was looked at as something that took place through their husbands, not independent of their husbands. The situation wasn't good at all. So when Jesus shows up on the scene and he begins to speak to women and about women, it's radically different, radically different than they heard from the rabbis, radically different than they would have heard from the philosophers around them. He treated women as individuals made in the image of God. He spoke to women, not in terms of their relationship to men or to even their husbands, but in terms of their relationship to God. He called them daughters of Abraham, just like he called men sons of Abraham. And he builds on this robust idea that arises out of the Old Testament, arises out of the idea that women were created equal with with men. And he, he reflects what you see throughout the Scripture. The Scripture shows and showcases significant spiritual strength on the part of women. In fact, in the Old Testament, there are, there are women who are uh, demonstrated at pivotal roles in the narrative of the Old Testament, demonstrating courage and faith, and in some cases, even being the pivotal people, such as Esther, the pivotal individual who, through the, through, through the power of God, became the deliverer of a whole nation of Israel. If it wasn't for her courage, Israel would have been decimated. Certainly the Bible acknowledges that there are distinctions between the genders. Men and women are not the same. They're created different and they have therefore different uh, distinct roles within the home and, and even within the church. But that doesn't relegate them to a lesser status. Everywhere you look, there are calls to recognize the special honor that is due to women, the virtuous value that they bring They are to be loved selflessly, Paul tells husbands in Ephesians 5. They are compared continually to his love for the the church, Christ's love for the church. Jesus, even at one point, entered into the home of Mary and Martha, you may remember, to, to, to do some teaching. 
And uh, Martha, of course, was engaged in domestic duties. Mary chose instead to sit at Jesus' feet and to learn and to be discipled. And when Martha questions that whole approach, Jesus values and Jesus elevates her discipleship over her domestic duties, saying that she had chosen the better part. He cherished women. He cherished their mind and their hearts, their intelligence, their spirituality. He understood that there was a greatness of faith, and he celebrated the greatness of faith of many women in his ministry. And as a matter of fact, he ordained that the very first people who would ever witness him in his resurrected body were women. And not only were they first the witnesses, but they were the first in the whole world to proclaim the news of his resurrection. All of that was by God's design. So it's not surprising that once Christ had been resurrected and ascended back into heaven and once his disciples had written the scripture and established the church, it's not surprising that the early church experienced an influx of women. They recognized it. They knew it. They understood that this was a movement, this was a a worldview, this was a truth that gave them a status that was unlike anything else they found in the world, and they flocked to Christianity. As a matter of fact, one second century critic of Christianity mocked the church, saying that Christians are, quote, only able to convince the foolish, dishonorable, and stupid, only slaves and women and little children, end quote. That was his not-so-favorable assessment of Christianity. Centuries, excuse me, uh, decades later, another Roman writer would write, once again, mocking the church for attracting what he says are, quote, the dregs of the popular and credulous women with their inability which is natural to their sex, end quote. I mean, he said that's, you know, that's the best you can do, and we all know that women are incapable They're incapable of learning, they're incapable of growing, they're incapable of virtue, and it's just natural to who they are. This is what women faced in the early centuries of the church, and it was the church, it was the Christian message, it was the gospel, which advocated for the dignity and the value that God places on women. And so they flocked to the church because of its liberating influence, because it uplifted their value. It celebrated their unique qualities. It focused on their spiritual excellence and made them more than just some sort of decoration in society. Not only that, the gospel message strongly condemned brutality and belittling of women. It denounced harsh words just like it denounced heavy-handed leadership within the home. It called for servanthood within the home and particularly for husbands to serve their wives and their children. It was clear regarding certainly the distinction of roles that men and women may have had with women naturally designed to focus on the bearing and the, and the nurturing of children. But it was equally clear that the roles that were given either to women and to men were to be carried out with a spirit of love and gentleness that laid aside all notions of self-interest. People were to esteem the interest of others ahead of their own, even in these relationships between men and women. Now, none of that is to deny that in the last 2,000 years, there have been people 
who in the name of Christianity have domineered women, or even, even churches that have created harsh environments for women. That's, that's, no, no one's denying that reality. But it's not because that's what the Bible taught them. And it's not because they were handling the gospel accurately. All of that was just simply a reflection of their own sinful flesh distorting the Scripture according to their own lusts, not according to the Scripture. So whatever challenges women might face in today's society, they don't arise from the Bible and they don't, they don't come from God's Word. So anyone who is truly interested in addressing the challenges of women should quickly align themselves with the time-tested truth of God's Word, which, have, which has always been the refuge of women in the world. And the reality is my body my choice does not do that. It promotes a kind of self-authority that runs contrary to the whole message of Scripture, which is not to tell you that you are the captain of your own fate. It's to tell you that God is your benevolent and loving Lord. I want to unpack that a little bit more, but before we do that, I want to quickly lay down just one uh, other principle of the gospel, one, a second principle, I should say, of the gospel that unmasks the myth behind this sort of motto of my body, my choice, and it's simply this. The gospel celebrates life in the womb. It celebrates life in the womb. It recognizes that human identity and life begins in the womb. The scripture frequently refers to God formulating his purpose for people even from the time that they were in their mother's womb. Jeremiah says it in the Old Testament. He says, the word of the Lord came to me in Jeremiah 1.4, saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you and appointed you a prophet to the nations. I appointed you in the womb for my purposes. Now, in saying all of that, he is simply repeating affirmations that are found elsewhere in Scripture. In fact, turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 139. Psalm 139, which is a well-loved and well-known psalm for most of us, but it makes crystal clear, uh, uh, absolutely unambiguous what God thinks about life before, conception, uh, before, uh, before birth, even at conception, I should say. Psalm 139, beginning in verse 13, David, writing the psalm, says, For you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. This is an absolutely beautiful picture of God incredibly weaving together new life, uh, the parts of the body in the womb. A beautiful picture of how he stitches it together like, a, like this grand garment 
weaving together chromosomes and DNA and cells and sinews and bones and blood and bringing all of that stuff together into human life. And all of it, he says, was fearful and wonderful, or which you really should probably translate awesome. That's really the idea of, uh, of fearful there. It wasn't a terrifying thing. It was an awesome thing. I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. And he makes that statement, you'll notice in verse 15, my frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret. In other words, even when other people were not able to see what was happening, God literally had his eyes on that little fetus that little baby inside of the womb, and God was delicately weaving together all of his or her parts. He even says in verse 16, your eyes saw my unformed substance, that unshaped form, what we in modern medical terms would call a zygote, that single cell life that has combined together the genetic material of of husband and wife, of male and female. He saw that unformed substance and he turned that little zygote into a ball of embryonic cells as it began to develop internally its nervous system so that it started to sense and feel the world in its early days of conception. Within just a few weeks, little hands and little feet begin to take shape with a little nose and little eyes and a little smile. Just in the first few weeks, all of these things happening and God delighting, rejoicing, stitching it all together, watching all of it and absolutely finding joy. And not only was God designing a little person, he was also detailing a plan. Uh, David says it there in verse 16, in your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me when there was as yet none of them. This is incontrovertible evidence that this, this is life that God was intending and he was planning from conception, from the stage of unformed substance in the womb. He already had assigned a purpose and a plan for that little life. And we all know in this fallen, corrupt world, we all know that those lives are, are, are different for everybody. For some, it might be short. For some, it might be long. But all of it is, is according to God's purpose and God's design. He has a purpose for these, these little lives. So in a divine and eternal sense, there's, there's no such thing as an unplanned pregnancy. God plans all of them, all of them. This is what Paul was reflecting on whenever he said of, of himself in Galatians 1.15, God set me apart before I was born and called me by His grace. Zechariah is visited by an angel in, in Luke chapter 1 and he's told that his wife is, uh, although she's barren, she's going to be found with child and that child will be named John. And then it says of John, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And of course, we read on in the story a little bit later, and Elizabeth is, uh, is expecting, and she's visited by her cousin Mary, who at the same time is expecting the baby Jesus. And when, she, when Mary walks through the door for a visit, 
Elizabeth says that the baby, the baby John, leaps in her womb at the presence of the Messiah in the womb of Mary. And we immediately understand that God is already involved in the life of that baby in the womb, having not only filled him with the Spirit, but giving him the, the, the intellectual sense of response. He is, he is impacting his will by the Holy Spirit and causing him to leap with joy. He is, in other words, in the womb contemplating God. God sees these little ones. He sees their unformed substance and he formulates his plan for them and he weaves them together with all of his joy long before you and I ever lay eyes on them. When it's all in secret, in the opening days before even a mother knows that she's conceived. And he's celebrating all of it. No slogan, no catchy cliche should ever be allowed to overshadow this incredible truth or the value and the vulnerability of these little lives that God is formulating. Now somebody come along and say, well, I mean, that all sounds good from your world. I mean, you probably had uh, some idea. You probably had some plan. You know, if, if you're a wife, you probably had some husband and y'all thought about having children together or you had some, some partner maybe. And, or even if you didn't plan it, you probably have resources. So you, you probably have the finances or maybe the family that can come around you. I don't have any of that. I'm not ready for this. I'm scared to death of this. I I, I mean, this this stuff is overwhelming for me. A whole pregnancy feels to them like some massive mistake. In some cases, like some massive punishment. And it might be the result of bad choices. In some cases, it's the result of horrific experiences. But you know, the Scripture never... mentions, never talks about our plan for children. Every time it talks about babies in the womb, it's always talking about God's plan. It's always what He is doing, not what someone else chose to do or didn't choose to do or any of those kinds of things. In fact, we actually see in some cases out of some of the most dire circumstances God actually raising up little ones and using them gloriously for his purposes. Uh, What that means for all of us is that expectant mothers, first of all, should do all that they can to protect these little lives that are in their womb. And God's people should do all that we can to protect and provide for these mothers who find themselves in sometimes desperate circumstances but we do that because we all equally recognize the value of what God may, may be doing, even through potentially sinful choices, what he may be doing in bringing a new life into the world. And so the gospel teaches us this. It elevates the status of women and it celebrates, without question, life in the womb. But there's a third principle that I think we got to wrap our heads around if we're going to unmask the myth of this little motto, and that is this, that the gospel obligates us to honor God with our bodies. It is crystal clear. 
you are obligated in your body to honor the Lord. In fact, look with me over at 1 Corinthians chapter 6 because Paul lays down this principle there in that chapter. He says in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 13, that the body, at the end of that verse, is for the Lord and the Lord for the body. So the body's for the Lord. That is to say that he is concerned with how we use our body. He specifically designed it for something both now and for eternity. And this is really, really profound if you begin to think about it because as Paul says there in verse 13, the body's for the Lord and the Lord for the body and God raised up the Lord and will raise up us by his power. So the resurrection informs what Paul is saying to us here about the body. I don't know if you've ever considered the weight of what he's saying here, but that you have been given a body both now and forever. Every person born in this world will experience a resurrection, some resurrected to eternal life, some resurrected to eternal punishment, but every person is destined for an eternal bodily experience. The body is not just some throwaway component. God intends us not to just sort of float around on some clouds in an ethereal sort of form. He has intended us to be embodied creatures forever. And that tells you that the body is important to our Savior. He's designed it. He's predestined it for eternal purposes, for glorious purposes. And now Paul's making this point in this passage, particularly in the context of talking about sexual sin, where he is taking on one of their own sort of cultural creeds from their time, uh, which is there in verse 13. You can see it. This is one of their one of their little slogans that they repeated, food is meant for the stomach and stomach for food. This was one of their mantras, the, the crowd of people who wanted to promote sexual freedom. They were basically saying, look, this is just the way that I am. This is the way I've been made. It's just sort of natural. It's kind of like eating food. I have these impulses. I have these appetites. It's just, it's just biological, you have to understand. It's, it's, it's just two consenting adults who naturally feel this way and act this way. Just like when I get hunger pains, I satisfy the hunger. I get sexual urges, I satisfy that, and that's just all part of biology. That was their, their argument. It's sort of like, you know, the modern day, how can it feel so right and be so wrong? You know, it was just about that, about that deep in his thinking. And so they were arguing that this is just the way we're made. You should just gratify whatever the impulses are. And their conclusion was, it really doesn't matter. God's going to destroy it all in the end. That's what they say. The body was, uh, the food is meant for the stomach, stomach for food, and God will destroy both, one and the other. See, they, they actually had a very low view of the body. In their Greek understanding, they thought that the afterlife was some disembodied state, just some sort of spiritual state. It's all going to go away anyway. Paul actually responds to that and says, no, it's not going to go away. You are embodied forever. You're embodied now and you're embodied in eternity. And that should communicate to you that God takes the body very seriously. And, and, and he is going to deal with us 
according to how we deal with our body. And so he responds to all that. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. How you use the body is important to the Lord. Far from dismissing it, God is is eagerly interested in it. And therefore, what you do with your body is not simply your choice. You may not be enslaved to the choices and desires of other people around you, but that doesn't mean that you're free to do whatever you want with your body. You're obligated to recognize that God has a plan for your body, and that plan does not include sexual immorality. It doesn't give you the freedom uh, either to terminate the life of an unborn baby. Those are not freedoms that come because God hasn't granted them. Now, on the flip side of that, Paul also says not only is the body for the Lord, but the Lord is for the body. In other words, he is a proponent. God is an advocate for your body. He has designed it. He's created it. He created it originally male and female. He declared after he created it in human form that it's very good. Not only did he design it, but he of all people knows what is best for your body. He is for it. And what he prescribes, he prescribes because he understands that it is, according to his design, the only pathway to greatest joy and health and stability, not just physically, but emotionally and, of course, spiritually. He is for, he wants you to experience all of the beauty of the body that he created. And so when he designs and what he prescribes for your body is in the best interest of you and your body. So many people think about what God has to say regarding sexual sin or even reproductive rights. They They just think about it in terms of denial But you really, you don't need to think about it that way. What you need to think about it as is design. It's his design. He made it this way. He put it together this way. You you design an automobile and it has all of his parts that fit in there together. And and, uh, when all the parts are, are arranged according to design, the thing runs beautifully. But if you have a VW bug and something goes bad and you decide you're going to put an F-150 door on the side, it's not going to work very well. You've got to use this thing according to its design. This is what's best for the body. If waiting and abstaining from premarital sex is hard, it's also best. It's best for you physically and it's best for you emotionally is best for your mental health and is best for you spiritually. If abiding faithfully in your marriage vows through hard times as well as the good, if that's hard, well, it's also best. It's best for you physically and emotionally to work through those differences, to remain faithful to your covenant because this is what God designed. See, God's not against you. He's for you. He's for your body. He prescribes what he prescribes for your blessing and for your happiness and for your good. And this has been the testimony of believers throughout all the ages. 
God has given us the design for sexuality. It's a gift from Him. It's intended to be a blessing to people and enjoyed by those that partake in it in His parameters. His design is that it be within a lifelong commitment of a man and woman in marriage. That's the way He he gave it to us. And so when you engage in sexual sin, what you're saying is that on one hand, you know better than God Even though you have not designed your body, you received it, now all of a sudden you're claiming to know better than him what's good for your body. Or in some cases, you've allowed someone to lure you into sexual sin and you're letting them tell you that they know better than God. That you should trust them more than God. You're telling God that he doesn't really understand you and in your body at all or what leads to blessing or what leads to health and each time you choose to use your body in a way that violates his design you're not only denying his role as the creator you're assaulting his wisdom you're spitting in his face and you're going to face consequences Paul says it down in verse 19 do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God you are not your own. You're not your own. You're not your own. Any slogan that attempts to tell you that you are, that your body is your own, that you have complete autonomy and no accountability to do whatever you want with your body, any slogan that attempts to deceive you in that way is doing nothing but just that. It is deceiving you. It's trying to get you to ignore or deny God, God's design for your body or design that is intended and proven to be the best for you. It's luring you down a pathway not only of activity that violates God's design, but it's luring you down a pathway that's going to leave you with severe damages in heart and mind and body. You know, this is the legacy of the modern feminist movement. They have followed down the Freudian pathway, which, which began to tell people that their identity deep down inside of them is sexual. Fundamentally, that's, that's who they are. They are sexual beings and their whole identity is wrapped up in that. And people began to embrace that idea and any, therefore any restriction against sexuality was considered to be an attack against a person's fundamental identity. That's all Freudian thinking. In fact, it sort of reached its zenith here recently in in not only same-sex attraction, but in in, uh, sort of transgenderism. Anybody that wants to identify however they want to identify, and you, you suppress that or you deny that, it's looked at as an attack against them and their identity as a person because sexuality is identity in the Freudian sense. And people embraced this in the feminist movement and the sexual revolution. They called for this idea of absolutely throwing off all restraints because all restraints were an attack against a person. And so therefore it promoted this idea of a promiscuous life and particularly promiscuous women. That was now the ideal of, of what a woman was supposed to be, a woman who was not restricted by other people, but in some sort of ironic way, she... These, these promiscuous women played right into the hands of the age-old ideal that every man had longed for, 
where a woman was nothing more than an object to be conquered, not a companion to be cherished for life. And once conquered, he moves on. This whole notion that's played out on screens and media all around us that you just move effortlessly from one partner to another without any consequences is nothing more than a fantasy. And of course, modern day conception is the key to this pathway, telling you that there are now no costs. You know, that was the last obstacle. We got rid of that. But the cost is evident. Just look around you. The trail of brokenness and bitterness and anxiety and loneliness like the world has never seen. All around us. Which really kind of introduces our final point. The gospel elevates the status of women. It celebrates life in the womb. It obligates the use of your body. But maybe most importantly, it eliminates guilt and fear. It eliminates guilt and fear. So women, no matter where they find themselves, no matter what the circumstances and the choices, no matter what the the, the things that are out of their control or in their control or all that stuff, the Bible says that that the gospel eliminates fear and it eliminates guilt. In fact, right there in 1 Corinthians 6, you can go back in verse 9, Paul's talking to them. In the Corinthian church, he says, Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, drunkards, revilers, swindlers. None of them will inherit the kingdom of God. But notice verse 11. Such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. This is, this is the church. This is not Paul casting stones at people from some ivory tower. He's not speaking to a group of people who are predisposed to sort of, uh, sort of moral straitjackets or goody two-shoes. They were not those who were naturally inclined in this direction. They were a group of changed people. They were not the product of pristine homes or perfect parents. They were the product of a corrupted society. And they were, in many ways, formerly homosexuals and thieves and drunkards and adulterers. And Paul could state it plainly because everybody knew it. He wasn't outing anybody. It was so evident he could put it into print and publish it for all the world to see. This was who they were. These were the lifestyles that they used to live in. Meaning, first of all, that someone reached out to them in that lifestyle. He reached out to them in the darkness and, and shared with them the light. Someone loved a thief. Someone loved an adulterer. Someone loved a homosexual. And reached out to them to share with them the truth of the way God's made them and His design for them. But it also means that something happened to them. They were radically changed. A change that brought about a total reversal of their life. And Paul emphasizes it with these three words. He says, first of all, you were washed. 
you were washed, which is uh, Old Testament uh, uh, imagery, uh, particularly out of the New Covenant, uh, where, where um, Ezekiel you know, talks about when the New Covenant comes, God's going to sprinkle you with water and you're going to be clean. Jesus says it himself in John chapter 3, no one who enters the kingdom of heaven will enter unless they've first been uh, born of the Spirit and the water. That's an image for cleansing. So, so yeah, you had all kinds of filth that has accumulated around you and on you through all of your decisions and the life you've walked through. Yeah, you might be pretty disgusting in your own eyes or maybe in someone else's eyes, but that doesn't matter. When you come to Christ, he, he completely washes everything away. He washed you. And then he sanctified you, which is simply a word for setting you apart for his purpose. That's what sanctification is. He sets you apart. If you, are, if you are in Christ, if you come to Christ, God sets you apart from everyone else who's out there in the world. He sets you apart to accomplish his work in you and through you. He sets you apart from sin and sets you apart to himself, which means that he enables you to now have victory over those old patterns of behavior, and he enables you to be used by him. So a life that was totally dominated not only by sin but by brokenness is now replaced by a life of holiness and a life of glory. And he says you were justified, which speaks about a new standing before God. You previously were unjust or unright. Now you are just and you are right. You'll say, well, how can that be? Well, it has, has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with Christ. You see, the Scripture says that when you come to God, you bring all of your filth and your shame and your guilt, and He transfers that onto Christ. And then He takes His perfect life, the perfect life of Christ, and He transfers that to you. In fact, it actually uses the language of a bank ledger. Like it's deposited into your account. You could imagine today if someone deposited $10 million and it just appeared in your account. Well, righteousness just appears in your account. And now, whenever he looks at your account, he sees righteousness. You go to a bank, you apply for a loan, and they open up your account. Like, we well, can't loan anything to you. It's not worth anything. You don't have any money. You walk out to the parking lot, you get a notification, boom, there's $20 million in your account. You go back in, you're like, um, can you take another look at that? And they're like, hey, yeah, let's go. You have righteousness. And it doesn't come from you, it comes from Christ and it's deposited to your account. And now when God looks at you, he doesn't look at the brokenness and the bankruptcy and the emptiness. He looks at you in perfection. You are just. You are right before God. That's what happened to all these people. They were wrong before. They lived lives that were disreputable before. They had things for which they could be ashamed before. But now, because they were in Christ, all that's gone. It's eliminated. And not only that, but the fear is gone. The fear that God would treat them or respond to them by the way they previously lived. 
That's also gone. I love that in 1 John 4, 18, when it says perfect love cast out fear because fear involves punishment. And the one who fears has not been fully matured in love. You haven't really understood God's love if you're still walking in fear because there's absolutely no reason to fear. You might think, well, you know, if, if you know what I did, and sometimes we can't escape that. I mean, we, we encounter certain situations or, or, or locations that might have been associated with our previous life or we might interact with people who might be associated with some of our past deeds. Sometimes it's, sometimes it's just looking through an, a photo album or catching a, 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 a sort of a, a scent of something and it takes you back to some previous time and you're overwhelmed by all of what you did and you begin to imagine that, that God is thinking that way. He's not. The fear is gone. So you could, be in a, you could be in any kind of situation, circumstances, by your own doing. You've messed things up royally. Royally. But when God sees and when God looks, there's no need to fear. No need to fear. If you understand His love, God is love, John says. And the one who abides in him abides in love. I love that phrase. If you abide, I mean, it's like you're living in love if you're living in God. You're living in his love. His love completely envelops you, completely surrounds you, and there's no need to fear. You've been washed, you've been sanctified, you've been justified. So, you might find yourself in a difficult situation. You might find yourself in an unplanned situation. But God is able to work through that. He's able to take even that messy situation. He's able to cleanse. He's able to justify. He's able to cast out all fear. And he's able to work in and through you. That's the message. I don't know if I can sort of put that in some pithy little saying, but that's the truth. That's the truth. And if you are tired, if you are tired from all of the false promises of the world and you're weary from all the dashed hopes, if you're ready to find yourself in that kind of place of God's love, he's ready to receive you. He's so ready to receive you. He just asks that you put your trust in Christ. Just confess your sin and your need for him. Ask him for forgiveness. And he hears the prayer of the needy. Father, thank you for this. We are, we are so in need of clarifying your message to a lost an anxious and a distressed world. It is so confusing for people who are out there and they find themselves brutalized and dominated by sin and by other people. I pray today that they would understand that you can be trusted, that your gospel has always been the answer for both men and for women, and that you, through the, through the truth and the light of your gospel, have always been in the business of restoring brokenness. I pray the broken people today would respond to you so that you can bring about the beauty of your work of grace in their life. 
We ask in Christ's name. Amen.